everybody. Welcome to episode 22 of Outspoken. I'm your host, Justin White, and I am most honored to have as my guest today the legendary Bruce Bickford. Um, he is a genius in the world of animation, as far as I'm concerned. Um, if you know of him at all, then you've probably already explored everything there is to know uh, about his work. And if you don't know of him, please, please do yourself a huge favor and find out. Um, I'll have links to everything at the end of the show. Um, but uh, he's uh, his work with Clay is just some of the best the world has ever seen or will ever see. Um, I'm dumbfounded when I watch it every single time. I've I've never grown tired of it. I've never... I see something new every time because there's so much going on in every frame. Uh, it's beautiful. It's frightening. It's um, it's honest. It's a pretty honest portrayal of uh, what goes on in human life. And um, so I was really super honored to uh, to get to talk to Bruce. Um, I first met him probably 12 or 13 years ago, um, thanks to my brother, who is also an incredible artist. Um, and Bruce was gracious enough to let us walk through his house and his studio and look at all of his work, everything that he had um, in his garage from decades past, uh, just endless, endless clay figures and... Um, you know, baker's racks full of baking sheets, full of characters of all sizes, the same character in a million different sizes. It was incredible. And um, he was generous enough to hang out and talk to us then. Um, and he was generous enough again to agree to talk to me when I asked my friend Aaron if uh, he would ask his friend Bruce if he'd be up for coming on the show. Um, Aaron, you might know from episode one of Outspoken. If not, uh, go check it out. And, and uh, I felt it was, it only made sense to include some of Aaron's music as well in this episode. So um, his band, Father Howell, has a new album out, which I'll also give a link to at the end. And um, there's some music from that in here. So check that out. Uh, so I was really super honored to get to talk to Bruce um, and I felt like kind of a dope I didn't know what questions to ask um, I don't know enough about the art world um, but I just think his work is so beautiful and he's a very uh, humble and gracious guy and uh, we talked about some interesting stuff so uh, I just gotta walk to where I can hear the train in uh, Discovery Park and then We'll talk to Bruce.
Yeah, it was a guy I knew at Venice Beach when I was working for Zappa in the 70, starting in 74. And this guy was a medical student and an athlete. He, he wanted to write a book about human performance. And he was a super athlete, I mean, really strong. But he was just a little guy, about 135 pounds. And he wanted to have one, at least one professional uh, fight in the ring. He wanted one that he was training to be a boxer. And he was a real no-nonsense guy. And I, one day I was making these clay figures at the beach, and he, he was telling me I had brains in my hands. And he says there, he knew a lot about neurological stuff, and he was going to be a brain surgeon or he, that was his goal, but he flunked chemistry when he was in uh, the medical school in Guadalajara. He got kicked out, but he said he knew chemistry better than any of them, and he probably did. But he, he said when there's nerves in, in your body and they connect with your brain, and sometimes, if, if you have the right um, kind of moves, if, if you can make certain moves with your hands, it gets to be automatic because the the uh, the the nerves are connected to your brains that are in your fingers. So essentially, you have brains in your hands, and you you don't even have to think about doing certain moves once you've started, because your fingers just do them automatically by touch, knowing where the next movement has to be. He, I guess he was equating this to me twisting up these little, you know, inch and a half tall clay figures that had musculature and uh, structure and everything to him, and so he said, "You, it's like with any athlete. They, you think movement, and automatically blood goes to the particular muscles you're going to have to use, mm -hmm. and so you um, you do things automatically without having to tell the muscles." To, to do them, uh, I, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Right, than, but when he said that to you, it made sense to register as something that. Well, it made it made as much sense as anything else I've heard on the sub. I, I've never heard stuff like that from anyone else, and mm -hmm. and I haven't heard about that since. But um, he, he said that. Well, there was another muscle man at the beach, an old-time muscle man, not not one that takes steroids or just tries to bulk, build up bulk, you know, fancy muscles. This guy was real compact, real uh, basic, and 
said at one time he'd been one of the strongest men in the world. The guy named uh, Doug Jamie, the, the mountain man. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> he said he could, from a crouch, he could leap clear over these bleachers they had there at the Muscle Beach. Really? Uh, and it was a, it looked to be about 30 feet. And just uh, spring out? Spring yeah, out that's, it. and another guy, a guy who was really built, another one of the old time strong men was talking about this, and this was a guy who would never joke or exaggerate anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it was true. And. Uh, my friend said that, that that mountain man guy, he would he was a contemplator. He he could he'd think about doing a certain thing till he was hyped up enough and then he'd do it. Hmm. Some fantastic move. And I'd seen him do things like doing uh, doing push ups on his thumbs uh -huh. with a fifty pound weight on his back. And at, at one time, he, he'd been able to do push-ups on just on his forefinger, just two fingers. And you watched him do this? No, I, I didn't see him do that. I okay. saw him do it on, on his thumb, which would be a little bit easier, but... Not that easy. Uh, but ha having brains in your hands, you, you could have brains in any part of your body, I suppose. was hippie land mm -hmm. uh, most of much of it was it, it's gone totally upscale since then right and where did you stand on hippies at the time oh I, I probably was one okay uh, probably looked like one and did you feel at home there in Venice um, it was much better than living in deeper in L.A. because at least there, there was often times an offshore blow, uh, some, a breeze coming from the ocean which pushed the, uh, the smog back mm -hmm. over the land. So but, you actually had a clear sky But when sometimes the, the wind would stop and then the, the, the cloud of smog that was L.A. just would go mushrooming out in all directions, out to sea. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be screwed until it started, uh, still the wind started blowing from the, the west again. So sometimes there'd just be like a yellow cloud hovering over? Venice. Oh yeah, it was, it was, um, oh, well that inversion layer stuff. Right. 
and he, so even in 74 it was a smoggy place huh? oh it, it was terrible back then when i moved down there i it uh, it was something i just never got used to mm -hmm. it was terrible all through the 70s it's it's much improved now because i mean of vehicle emissions he, yeah that, that was probably mainly it they uh, they cleaned up the cars right the the smog was the worst part, mm -hmm. but then in uh, seventy eight, I got a place out in Topanga Canyon, and that was much better. But it was it wasn't nothing was ever really practical. Setting up a studio, um, it was a little too far from L.A. to commute easily mm -hmm. but it was a, a a better living environment for sure how so <clears throat> just a nicer it's place to more live. easy going mm. not uh, not as much uh, confusion uh, not as much noise not not much noise and interesting people and uh, a lot of hippies down. I was in Old Canyon, mm -hmm. the the branch, the uh, north branch of the the creek, and down by the creek bed, there were a lot of hippies living in this row of uh, smaller houses, and and they even had a, a newspaper, the local newspaper. It was called Creek Rat. Mm -hmm. And uh, deep down in the the deepest part of the canyon, down towards the beach, well, a couple of miles above the beach, but uh, below the little village of Topanga, mm -hmm. the canyon was, uh, it, it was just very rocky high walls and fantastic rock formations everywhere and I, I would just go down there and hike around for hours just because there was everything to trip out on uh -huh. the, the creek and the little the way that it flowed over rocks and stuff and, and you're, uh, you're a bit of an adventurer right you like to climb well, and well I'm, I'm no adventurer well not anymore but I but in your in your I, heart, that's sort of yeah. I like I loved climbing things. Mm -hmm. Me too. And uh, I, I wish I could still do that. I'm just over the hill. I'm not. I I'm not not the physical guy anymore. Yeah. But you used to do a lot. I mean, I, I I've seen I've seen video of you climbing very tall trees to the very top, and I don't think that was all that many years ago. Well, back in when I was a teenager, I was probably the best tree climber in the county. Were you I, going I'm for just it? guessing. No, it wasn't. A, it wasn't good. a sport. It right. wasn't. I was no good at any kind of sports in mm -hmm. school. In fact, I, I was the worst, the most uncoordinated. Mm -hmm. But I found, figured out that pretty early that I was able to climb trees. And I, I worked on that. Nice. So you remember actually sort of uh, trying to 
foster your abilities and practice and get really good at it? Or do well, you just yeah, sure. I try. <laughs> but there's limits to everything. It, it, uh, I, I guess I was more interest, more deeply interested in making things with clay and doing animation and drawing. Right. How early and did that, that start for you? Oh, I, I started animation in 70, or no, 64. Yeah, 1964. You started it, you know, I mean, as a career, or, or would you no, just, just, just started doing, doing it? But as it turned out, I kind of just didn't ever work much at a regular job, and I've, I've never been good at making money. Mm -hmm. And I just, when the job with Zappa ended, I came back up here to Seattle and right where I am right now, and my, my mom let me set up in the basement for doing animation, and so I just resumed doing it and didn't have to support myself, really. Right. My, my parents helped out. And you just worked all the time? Uh, yeah, as much as possible. And did you have, I mean, do you want to talk about the Zappy years, or is that, oh. I mean, well, or just <laughs> breeze through it, or just... Or is it a sore spot? We can, I, we can leave it. Oh, and look, life is a sore spot. That's true. For some people, some people have a have a great easy life. Other people, because of flaky things they do in life, they it becomes more difficult. Yeah. The biggest mistake I made with Zappa was I, I should have demanded from him that I I get to direct the movie we mm -hmm. were supposedly making. Baby snakes. Yeah, because basically he uh, didn't have a clue. I mean, if you if you examine if if you have the guts to examine baby snakes and uh -huh. see how uh, uh, it should be apparent to anybody that a lot of that stuff was just bottom of the, I'm scraped off the bottom of the garbage can. Right. I mean, he, like, just wasting time. He, see, he had this, I think from being on stage all those years and goofing off and playing the audience and just it, uh, taking an taking advantage of the audience and being indulgent mm -hmm. in front of all those people. He had the idea he could do that in a movie also. I see. Like he has things where he says, oh, and now our road manage, manager is going to tell you about uh, such and such with, with all the rest of the band running interference over him. So he has the road manager talking and then he, everyone else starts yakking and all around him. And, just a cacophony and uh, uh, just um, the poorest excuse for entertainment, mm -hmm. and or him holding up a, a toy cop car by his head and, and repeatedly turning his head towards it, and you thought that or, was like or going on about a a a, a toy poodle. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
Yeah, or have... walking on down the stage talking about how God created man and woman mm -hmm. with the most sardonic, just, uh, or no, just just a, a spiteful look on his face, like, hey, I, now it's my turn to to be obnoxious yeah, and, and to look down on. And he would look. I I. I, I've, I've had my ups and downs with Frank <laughs> yeah. over the years. Just, just think. I, I was never around him that much, but just thinking about him and everything, he, he was great. Mm. As far as music goes, he was one of the greatest. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> he wasn't great in all areas. That's what I've heard. And that's so I mean, I, I'd rather just appreciate him for, for the good things. Well, that's good. Because he, uh, boy, talking about a guy having brains in his hands, he, well, he had something going on. That's for sure. He seemed to be channeling something, you know, from another world. Because to be able to compose music on instruments you've never played, is that's some kind of crazy gift, I think, to, to have a deep enough understanding that you could just write yeah, a but, symphony, but, basically. But as far, as far as I was concerned, I mean, uh, on my own level, I, sh I should have insisted right at the beginning that I get to direct the movie right. and that we have a few things like a, a production manager. Because I got... I, I went astray so often making clay figures that never got used mm. during that period. You needed somebody and, to rein it in. And, oh yeah, uh, I needed I, I need a little management. Yeah. I need some control, and I, <laughs> I still do. Because you get lost in the world. And, and Writing these graphic novels, I've just gone on and on with um, and, a lot of the time, I just didn't want to finish. Yeah. I because it would mean a shift of activity. It would mean doing something uh, awkward, like starting a new project. Right. <laughs> and it, where harder. it's safe and easy to just keep on sitting there drawing. Right. And I'm. Uh, I. I. I in my old age here, I'm 71. I, I still haven't gotten past a lot of these infantile um, um, modes of uh, existence.
early 70s. Mm-hmm. I got out of the service in 69, and I, I was just working in the basement here. Mm-hmm. And um, and then in about 71, I started doing line animation, d- d- line drawings. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done a lot of that over the years. Much of it hasn't even been put to use yet. Mm-hmm. It, it needs the soundtracks and things. Or I could just put all of it together into a, a movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe even expand it into a feature length thing. Yeah. It'd be nice to be able to do that the right way, the way that you'd like to do it. And, uh, but uh, mainly I want to be in the movie business. You do? And I've got a few ideas. Every, every time I hear some interview or something with uh, people in the business, I, I feel like if the person seems like I could get along with them, I feel like uh, trying to get in touch with them mm-hmm. and propose, do a pitch of one of my stories, a proposal for, for a feature movie because all these stories I have in my files here are on <clears throat> the related movie related ideas okay you, you can you can envision that they, they could be form. graphic novels or just novels or any kind of story but my original intention with almost all of them was to, to make a movie idea a, a treatment mm-hmm. and if you were if something like that were to be picked up would you I mean my understanding is that you've always been the only one who does the animation right you do, you do all of it every all the hands on right well I could use other animators you would okay no, I'd have no problem with that but you would do the you would be making the figures if it, if it were clay, or you were doing the drawings. Everything is, is uh, everything's adjustable. Okay. If you have people that can do things, then... Then it's okay um, to use them. Yeah. Nice. As long as it all fits into a overall style. Mm-hmm. I figure there's three things it takes to make a movie. Content, technique, and style. And the content is physically, what do you have there? Your, your uh, actors, your sets, your story, mm-hmm. all, the st- all that stuff, the solid stuff. Right. Technique is what you do with the cameras and the sound, what, what um, technology can get the, the effects and the, um, the movements and everything you need. And style is the thing that holds it all together, that makes it work. Okay. So content, technique, and style. And if you're missing any one of those, it, it won't be a good movie. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that goes for any movie? For, or for specifically? Oh, well, for that's, that's just basic. I mean, you, yeah. you could add a number of other um, things to that 
Right, but that's the that's the fundamental needs. Well, in in my in my way of thinking, that those are the three most basic things you're going to need. Mm-hmm. And how do you how? So the style comes from the individual artist, right? I mean, the, it seems like the other well, the, well, the ov- content comes the from overall theirs. vision yeah. that makes scenes holds scenes together and creates a point of view. I mean, some some directors just more or less set the camera up and let it run, mm-hmm. and to me that's unsatisfying. It's it's minimalistic and it shows that they don't really have much to say. Right. It's a fairly flat perspective. If you if you can move the camera around to get different points of view, it then there's where you're going into depth where you're you're drawing the viewer in and getting them involved with the material. Right. Working on a story, sometimes I'm not thinking in terms of a theme. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking in terms of imagery and a flow of action. But before I get very far with it, a theme might evolve. And then I realize what the story's really about. And I can't give you a real example of this. I, in all these stories in my files there, there, many of them are things that just evolved from some, I, some idea or some image. Uh, you can make a story about almost anything. Like once back uh, 20 years ago, I was out walking down the driveway at night and there was a, the moon was out and there was a mist in the air, a slight, a, a faint fog, and there was, the moon beams were coming through the trees, through the gaps in the branches and leaves and stuff. and. Looking at those moon beams, I would think, just wondering, thinking what, what what that moonlight must have meant to people back in 1956, you know, 40 years earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, it just came to me this, I thought, oh God, those days. And that became a title of one of my stories, Th- Those Days. Okay about a guy who goes through, a guy, a gopher in the CIA, Uh just a nobody, but an important guy, a mover and shaker, because he, he, they rely on him for things they can't figure out. And eventually he has to get away from them. He he doesn't like it. (laughs) He goes on a hero's journey, and which is kind of a hackneyed term for a, what he was doing, but he he eventually got to a place where he got closer to figuring out the secrets of the universe. And it's writ- I've got that story written out, most of it. The, the, the last 10 pages of it got lost, mm-hmm. but I've got about 70 pages there. 
and I want to finish it up sometime. And you know the ending already? Oh yes, I've I've got the I've got the first draft still. It's just that the transcribed part okay. part part of that got lost. I see. And so, well, that, I think that's what I was getting at with the theme because you know you you mentioned both the the hero's journey and the sort of the nobody aspect of the of the protagonist. You know, the sort of I feel like there's sort of an underdog thing that goes on in a lot of your work. Oh, well, there's a lot in a lot of my stories, the, the main character is basically me if I was better than I am, or luckier, or more competent. Okay. And that, so that's when they're, as the stories are developing, you, you sort of embody one of the characters, or do you, do you move around from character to character? Does, uh, it, does it operate like that? Or is it well, you, you have to figure out every character. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to do their thinking. So because time. they're not going to do it for you. That's true. So, so do you feel like every, I mean, there, you have clips that are ten seconds long that have a hundred characters in them, right? Are there examples of that oh, where you're just yeah, doing probably. so There's, much activity? Well, when I went, when I first showed my stuff to Zappa back in '73, mm -hmm. when I went down there early that year to look for work in L.A. Mm -hmm. And when I finally got to him and I showed him the, like the big barroom scene right. um, with all the guys hassling around, uh -huh. uh, after seeing it, Frank said, well, he, he was impressed with uh, how many figures I could have sustained in animation at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, must be a world record. So, <laughs> and that was, you know, a few weeks later, or a week and a half later, I was still in L.A., and I, I was showing my stuff to some film buffs, and there was one guy, Bob Greenberg, who was like a preeminent film buff in L.A., mm -hmm. Who, who knew just about everything about movies, and he said he was, he'd always been a fanatic about camera movements. And he was talking about that same scene, the barroom scene, mm -hmm. and he said that um, my camera movements, whether they worked or not, they, uh, I had the most ambitious camera movements of anyone in the world. Wow. So, jeez, two, <laughs> two, two world records within a week and a half. Not bad. Where's the Guin where was Guinness when this was going down? That, well, so that's what I was going to ask about. Like, when you have a scene with that many characters in it, and you're animating each one of them, each time you move the camera, or every time you snap a shot, are you thinking, like, as you move around from character to character, are you, are you getting back into the... You know, this this guy, here's his backstory. Well, you, you, you have to, I, I would usually take it in like a, a circuit. I would, if I'm animating 20 figures at once, mm -hmm. I would go one at a time around a circle of the whole group and then get the guys in the middle. 
Okay. But do them each frame in the same order. Right. So I wouldn't leave anyone out. And each time I'd get to each particular figure, I would I could see what he was doing, what kind of move he'd make, and I'd I'd he'd I would just have to um, just make a well, subtle adjustment. Yeah, adjust each figure individually for his own particular movement. So I'd have to think for each one of those figures, every frame, 24 right. frames a second. <laughs> and, I, you know, the reason I'm doing graphic novels right now is because I kind of, I kind of had to take a break from the animating. Mm -hmm. Because it's the most difficult thing I know about. It seems like it's just incredibly laborious. Like, I mean, even if you love what you're doing, the amount of just the technical meticulousness that you need to, to get it right. Uh, I mean, for me, just the time consuming nature of it would would drive me bananas because I would want to be doing more, well, you more, have more to have faster. Before you can do animation, you have to have the time to do it. Right, and a lot if of you're, If you're doing a, working at a regular job, doing uninteresting work, you, you're gonna, by the end of the day, you're kind of burned out and you're not, you don't have much energy left to do your animation. Yep. I think you, you've gotta, You've got to get some way of um, a place to work or some someone to finance you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's, uh, how how can people survive if they're hassling with everyday uh, getting food on the table and a roof over their head? Mm -hmm. Yeah, How can you do anything else than? <laughs> so it, I, I get I've just been lucky that I haven't had the. Um, I I still have to in daily life I still have to do a lot of things I don't want to because. You know the, the daily just. The daily grind, get, getting everything. Like in this place where I'm, place where I grew up, where, where I still am, mm -hmm. it, it takes that tremendous amount of upkeep to keep a, a house running. Right. To keep it from falling apart. That's true. Yeah. And so I, there's a ton of that stuff I have to take care of. Right, and don't want to, and it and, takes time. But I've still had a leftover time to do my what I want to do.
back here from LA in 81. Uh, it wasn't very long before we started having a really brutal series of murders up here. It was called the Green River Killer Case, and it all centered right around this area, it seemed like. I mean, the first, the first victims were last seen at this little Three Bears Motel right down by the highway there, about a mile away by, as the crow flies. Mm. And then they were vanishing from the airport strip and the first victims were found in the Green River down in the valley there on the way to Kent. Okay. And then they were being found along the, the woods uh, south of the airport. And was this over a span of like days or weeks? Oh, or no, this or? was years. Years. Se several years. But it was all happening in this same area? Yeah. Okay. And they didn't know how to stop it and because they didn't know who was they they were they had well no they suspect. had it they had a suspect which turned out to be the real guy but they didn't do anything about it i think they the guy running the green river task force died in a scuba accident and that kind of uh threw him off like stalled track. the whole, whole thing. And the guy, the actual killer, went on in freedom for another, what, 20 years? Really? It continued yeah. Same, serial well, killing? Quite a while. Wow. But during those days when, when that guy was running loose, I, it was a scary kind of time around here. It sounds like it'd be terrifying. And, <clears throat> because uh, girl, girls were being grabbed from the airport strip and uh, one, one guy tried to get me in his car up on the bridge over the freeway just, just up military road from here. And you were how old? You know, when, oh, I was growing. This, this, was, this was during... This Probably seventy four, maybe. Oh, okay. No, I'd say seventy three. But <clears throat> this guy was a maniac. Eh? I, and when you're on a bridge, where can you go? You can go forward or backward or over the side. Right. And, <laughs> and this guy pulls up and he's yelling, "Get in! Get in the car! Get in the car!" And and he it looked, I was just seeing him through the dirty side window on his car, and he, 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 there was a strange kind of mark on his face. And then he, he opened, he reaches over, opens the door and pushes it open, and he's demanding I get in his car. He's saying, get in the fucking car. Mm. Come on, I'm not a queer. And, and that's when I saw him with the door open, you know, not just through the dirty window. Then I saw that mark on his face. It was running vertically from between his, his 
right eye, or no, between his left eye and his nose. It, it was a gouge, it was a big gash. Uh -huh. It was about an inch and a half, or well, an inch and a quarter long, and about an eighth of an inch wide. Was it a and scar, or was it no, an open it was wound? Fresh. It was like a it fresh. Was, okay. It wasn't bleeding. I mean, he'd gone home and changed his shirt and right. washed up. But it was a fresh cut. It, wa it wasn't. It wasn't scabbed over yet. It was bright, livid red inside that thing. Yikes. It was deep, and so I mean, someone had had really uh, gouged him, mm -hmm. and. Uh, um, I just pushed his door shut, and I noticed the the seat belt was hanging out that side, like someone had just made a getaway mm. from the same car. <laughs> it's terrifying. And then he drove on, and I I, went, I turned around, went back this direction from the off of the bridge, and at, at the end of the bridge, I looked down at the freeway, and he had drove up north to the other on ramp and he w here he was going south on the freeway mm. and <clears throat> uh, I called the Green River Task Force about that guy because uh, I just thought they should know and they, the, the woman who answered she, she was giving me some leading questions about this guy so I know they were well familiar with him Wow. So she said, was he short? Uh -huh. Was he white? And it had me, I described him and everything, and they described the cut on his face and all that. I mean, obviously this guy had been on a roll, just driving around terrorizing everyone that day. Wow. <laughs> So, so is that was that him or you? Th no, you th that that wasn't know, the guy. Another... That definitely wasn't the guy. Okay. Because he, when he came out later, um, he very, very distinctly different and okay. in every way. And you know, my younger brother went to school with that guy down at Tai High School there. With and, the Green River Killer. Yeah. Wow. Did he say guys anything? I know knew him? Did they any of them say anything about what the, he was like? The people, then? people I know knew him. Mm -hmm. and said he seemed normal then. They thought his brother was the nutcase. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, it, during that same, during the period when that stuff was going on or when it was just peaking, mm -hmm. I, I was on, I was walking up near that same bridge at night and I noticed a stench over the over the side of the hill there, where it, the hill, the woods sloped down towards the Kent Valley, and I noticed something that just smelled horrible. I mean, it was a, some animal. I thought, oh, it's just a dog, and then I thought, could be a, a victim, mm. could be a Green River victim, and I should have called them on it. I mean, I should have called the task force, because it wouldn't have hurt. Mm. And I think it's it, it was it was a, such a a powerful smell. I mean, no one's gonna throw a dead dog over the bank there. Doesn't seem likely. Uh, and so that that might have been one case they could have 
cleared up. One one of the missing people, they never found. I'm sorry I didn't uh, call them about it. Well, I don't think you can put that on yourself. I mean, <clears throat> how was he eventually caught? He oh, they had, they had a, a cotton swab that they, they had his saliva on it from, you know, 20 years before, uh-huh. and they finally got the means to test it. Wow. And then they just went to his house yeah. and collected him and locked him up? Is that... Yeah. Or, yeah, I, basically, I, I guess. <laughs> but at that time, everybody around here was just, I mean, wasn't there just sort of a steady panic or a steady oh, not, not anxiety? not a panic, but just kind of, kind of an uneasiness. But and you would still walk around? Even my, my brother, who was had extreme mental problems, was an alcoholic and was threatening to kill people. Mm. Uh, well, there's a lot of mental illness in my family. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sad to say. But my, I was over at my neighbor's place next door here one night, and my my brother would always, he, he had to be drunk all the time okay. to do anything, and he would go down to this place down on 188, which was right there, go it's just up just east of the airport strip where the girls were vanishing mm-hmm. and he would go my brother would go down to this one cafe down there regularly it, it, it was a middle class kind of you know diner okay. not just a sleazy joint but right. you know or, Green River or the airport strip prostitutes would probably stop there. Uh, but my neighbor, I was over at my neighbor's one night, and he says, "Hey, I wonder if, wonder if Fred has anything to do with those girls, because hmm. he'd been hanging out down there, kind of near the strip, and man, it just hit me right then, and it was just." Uh, it just thinking, what if? And it terrified me, and I was just, uh, I was so scared I was shaking. And then I, I, I went over to, uh, from my neighbor's place, I went over to the garage here where I had my animation scene set up, mm-hmm. where I was filming a thing. And I had the the big door on the side of the garage open, and I, it was at night, and I was just looking out there. It, it seemed humid. It seemed like I felt like I was in an aquarium or something. Mm. The air felt so thick. I felt like I was underwater, or I was looking through water or something. Right. And just, just the idea that your brother could. Yeah, could be the, the, guy. the vibes were so heavy that. You, you could you could slice off a piece of the vibes with a knife, <laughs> just carve out a piece of the air and have some Green River vibes Yikes. right there. <laughs> well, that that was that was kind of the mood back then. Okay, but for years. What, because of one, one jerk. One lunatic, yeah. Just one guy was causing that much trouble. 
a question that I'll ask on behalf of my brother uh, had, has to do with your the process, the difference in the process between working in clay and working on in 2D. Well, all I can say is it takes sometimes it takes a a bit of a transition going from one to the other. Mm. It's um. It, it's like you get so into the groove of drawing, like your your pencil point is like in the groove of a record or something. Okay. Like the needle of a record, and it, it's hard to get out. And going to clay, it just it, sometimes it um, yeah, it's hard shifting gears. Mm. But one once you whatever you get into you um i'm just speaking for myself i can't put this on anyone else but um it's like i can see it in my drawings i'll have an image of something and then i'll do a variation on the image maybe in the same frame and then a whole collection of them and maybe they could change shapes and almost be like animation going across the the page going from big to small a whole succession of the same image and mm-hmm. uh, or just um different impressions of the same face or body or whatever and uh I don't know. It, there, there's there's overlap of things like that between different mediums, mm-hmm. and I I get obsessed with things. Like a, a couple of years ago, it was I was gathering up s- sticks, little pieces of wood, just tiny twigs, and sorting them out and and making these little buildings for this little town. Uh-huh. that I I had made the roofs for this town. After the big heat wave we had here when it got up to 105 oh. back about seven or eight years ago, a lot of my little houses in the garage, little clay houses, were falling apart because of the heat. Because mm-hmm. the clay is uh, susceptible to melting or right. softening with the heat. and. And so I, when I was putting those houses back together, I realized I, I wanted roofs for them, and I started making little shingled roofs, and I worked out a technique where I could, I turned out a whole bunch of these roofs, and I still got them. They haven't been put on anything yet. And, uh-huh. and then a few years later, I started making, with twigs making the frames for the houses to put these roofs on because I made way more roofs than I had houses at the time. The, the, I was trying to repair these little houses and made roofs for them, but then I made more roofs and more and more, and so I got enough for a whole little town, the little town that's in my stories. Okay. The place at the base of the cliffs of the uplands and that old time kind of town. It's called Old Town because that's what it is. It's an old town. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and so I'm making all these little structures and then I, I made one that sort of looked like a sled. 
and there's these mystical sleds in some of my stories that can move without anything pulling them. Okay. And they can even fly, and so I, I went into making sleds for a, and this went on for about a month and a half. That's all you were doing is making sleds? Yeah, making things out of wood, out of twigs and sticks and bending things around, making various structures. And and then I made, I I noticed that the the glue I was using, this this heavy-duty, fast-acting carpenter's glue, I noticed one little leftover patch of glue looked kind of like a face mm-hmm. so i started molding faces out of this glue by just <laughs> painting with it with a stylus or whatever a, tw- a tool yeah any point just tool. dabbing glue onto the paper in a face pattern and then when it dries dab more onto those until you're building it up into contours like the bulges in a, someone's cheeks or right. their forehead, forehead wrinkles, everything. I, I made comedy and tragedy faces, and I kept. So I did that for a month, <laughs> to, until I figured I had enough. Okay. And it just goes that way. You I just get go into little obsessions, and, and it's like the leaf masks. I was out cutting those leaf faces out of the magnolia leaves I I put some features on some of those leaves with the glue mm-hmm. to, to accent their just the cut out uh, appearance of their face with lips and noses and uh, eyelids and whatever and any, anything I if if I if I do go off on a tangent or switch mediums or techniques, I it takes me a while to get back to where I branched off from because uh-huh. I got I just get fascinated with the look of things and trying new variations on a particular expression or a a nuance and. And it just, that's the way it goes. I'm just if if I had a manager who knew what they were doing, they would say, "No, today we do this." And if I would could adhere to that discipline, that that'd be great. But yeah. uh, as is, I'm just kind of flipping around <laughs> uh, from one thing to another, and just trying to trying to make good use of my time. Yeah. Well, it's hard when you're that when you're curious and you want to explore the extent of a medium. You want to see what you could do with the material and how you could integrate it. It would be hard to stop halfway and say like, "Oh, I'm just going to go back to what I already know." For me, it would be. I'd always want to be. I'd just be more curious to see what else could be done. So maybe that's why the tangents take you far away. But is it? I mean, isn't? I would imagine that's pretty satisfying to do even even if it feels like there's not enough time for it i would imagine you're, oh, that's I, like when you're at your best you know in that meditative when state. i'm when i'm doing something i'm it it's it's comforting to be doing something maybe mm-hmm. it it takes takes your mind off other things mm-hmm. 
keep your brain in your hands. You could just think think with think with the things that are creating the worlds. Um, so when you do you feel like the the repetitive nature of animation is that is that do you get into sort of a zen state or do you find it tedious mm. or because some people I think no, non-animators with animation I noticed in the earlier years when I was in the 70s I, I began to notice that well you see there's this the frame counter on the camera mm -hmm. or it's a footage counter it was pretty crude on a bolex you couldn't see how many frames you had done you just see how how the foot the footage meter is moving okay and i noticed that i felt i felt better about animating if i quit if i didn't feel like looking at the frame counter or i mean the footage count meter mm, right if i just if i just do the work and don't worry about how much i'm getting done right i could i i i had the feeling that you're you're animating better when you aren't worrying about how how much time it's taking i think that's got to be true and probably true with music and because and it's going to take time no matter what so you you might as well not worry about it that's true um so do you we can wrap up here in a second. Do you, can you talk just a little bit about your graphic novel that's about to come out? Oh. Do you well, it was around the election time, or it was coming up towards the election that I started working on that thing. You're going on two years ago now. Right. And it was just going to be a short thing. I just wanted to get something off my chest. But... The more I went along with it, the the deeper I got. I mean, the story was about the candidate was so uh, tangled, and so there were so many things from the past that the media had never gone, had just ignored, mm -hmm. just given this person a free ride, and so I just kept going and. I went off on a few things, like I brought in characters like Mothman and Wasp Woman, mm -hmm. and threw in a lot of stuff about the Kennedy assassination. You did you sort of sneak it in there, or is it is it pretty overt? Oh, it's it's blatant. Okay, good. And um. Or well, even things about things like the the Haitian relief funds and what happened to them. How how did that thing go astray? Mm -hmm. And where'd the money go? You have stuff like that included? Oh sure. Oh good. And and the the bearer the bonds which this money is hiding in. And I don't understand high finance or. Uh, commerce or any of these things at all. I just, I was just winging it. I just made up of some outlandish things about uh, schemes being 
played on the Haitian people, the most vulnerable people in the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And they, to pick on them, to use them, to, to steal from them, it's just a, it seems totally heartless. So. It is. It's, it's truly rotten. Well, anyway, the, the story goes into a few of those areas, but nothing, nothing provable or substantial. It's just, uh, and and there's things that are just, um, they're they're related in in a way, like things about the. Bermuda Triangle because that's near the, that's right on the border of the Caribbean mm -hmm. and the Sargasso Sea and the giant peaches that grow on the bottom of the ocean there because of all the stuff that collects in this this well it's the horse latitudes the Jim Morrison kind of song uh -huh. that, uh, and uh, I was dredging up old ancient images from when I was just a kid, before I was ever doing animation. Things like an undersea uh, figurehead of a ship, this mysterious woman who looks kind of like the, one of the first Green River victims and uh, the ships that are coming up from the bottom of the ocean that get incorporated into a, a new Haitian citadel. You, you know the citadel in Haiti? I don't. That, oh, it's up on a hill, it's up on a mountain. They, they, the Haitians, when they got their in, independence, they revolted against the French in the early 1800s. Okay. And then, they they built their king had them build a a, a citadel mm -hmm. to so he could be safe from an, an invasion from France and the invasion never came. The citadel is still there. It's the biggest citadel in the Western Hemisphere. Is it just sitting there vacant, or is it well, like it, a memorial well, or a, a museum? It, it, or it's a historical place. Okay. It's not like a and decrepit ruin. In, in the story, there's a new, another one that's being built, but it's a secret. Okay. <laughs> and this is all. This is all in the storyline of your. Yeah, of it's all in the the election story. That's what it's called. Is it? Or is oh it? no, it has a different title. Okay. Do you want to give it now, or do you want? Or is that oh, secret too? Fisting with Satan. <laughs> okay. Um, and is there, does the candidate that you mentioned, does have a name beyond oh, the candidate? No, I don't, I don't name, I didn't use real names. Nothing incriminating I changed, changed the names. Right. Or but does the Maybe I, hey, hey, I probably slipped up a few times and <laughs> used the real names of some people, but uh -huh. I try not to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's fairly clear what you're talking about. It sounds oh, like totally <laughs> couldn't be misconstrued. No. Okay, good. And when is it due to come out? Oh well, maybe next, early next year, okay. maybe February. Great. 
And then do you have a follow-up in that same... Well, there's a, about four other graphic novels that I have pretty much completed. It's just that I put them all on hold to do this one. Mm-hmm. Are they part of that same? Are they part of a series? Are they resistance not, based? Not really, but there are some. There's some crossover uh-huh. in a few of them. Oh, my my throat's starting. Okay. To go. I'd probably well, let's let's say let's call it quits then. Um, I really yeah, really well, appreciate thanks. you doing this with me. Um, yeah, sure, anytime. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. That was Bruce Bickford. The amazing Bruce Bickford. Um, please go check out his work. Uh, you can find him at brucebickford.com. It's B-I-C-K-F-O-R-D. Um, you can also search YouTube, YouTube and you'll find all kinds of clips. But um, I think you should go right to the source the man himself you can get on the mailing list uh find out about appearances and um upcoming releases and such things like his new graphic novel which should be out soon next year um and hopefully more like it to follow um i'm sitting here looking at a piece of bruce's that i got um when I went to his birthday party last year uh, and we ate giant pizzas. Well, he didn't, but there were giant pizzas. And um, this piece is amazing. It's from the Castle Disco. And there are a couple of little characters here. They're no more than, I guess one of them's like half an inch. The other one's quarter of an inch tall. They're tiny, and they have little faces and, and details and everything. They're beautiful. I'm so, so happy I have it. And uh, I'm so happy I got to sit with Bruce in his little drawing area surrounded by his file boxes, which were packed full of story ideas, some of which have been produced and some of which have yet to be. And I really hope they all get to see the light of day because... Um, everything that's come out of his brain so far has been worthwhile worth looking at um and so thank you to bruce and thank you to aaron for setting up our conversation and uh the music the last two songs that you heard were both from aaron's band called father howl h-o-w-l and their new album called wayward doctrine uh is gonna come out it either just came out or it's about to come out i'm not sure but go check it out at fatherhowell.com uh it's gonna be on beautiful vinyl it's gonna be amazing aaron did all the artwork too uh so anyway thanks for listening uh new guest next week talk to you then bye